Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 119. Power to the people. Hello, Julius. How are you doing? Welcome back. I'm doing great, Albert. I'm I'm enjoying the fact that apparently your age is showing through and you're forgetting <laughs> not 10 seconds after you think of an idea what your idea was. Yeah, well, it's like, that happens. Okay, we're going to do it. Here's the idea for the intro. Oh, God, I forgot it. <laughs> it's because it wasn't that funny, unfortunately. But it uh, is a clever play on something. <laughs> it's a clever play on something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Right. Yeah, so today's game is about an energy empire isn't it yeah i guess so mm-hmm. see funny that you don't need to make an energy empire like an energy empire i mean i guess we can get into that later <laughs> but you already started so go on i mean it's funny that you can we're, we're going to be reviewing later on manhattan project energy empire and i just realized you don't really need to make an energy empire you just sort of need to ensure that you have energy to power the rest of your empire huh okay but it's not really about, it's not like Power Grid, where you're focusing on the energy. You can very easily not focus on the energy. Uh, have you ever played Power Grid? I've never played that. How have you never played Power Grid? I, I own it, but I've never played it. Oh, I don't own it, because I thought it was an absent snooze fest. But, I mean, there's a certain problem. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but for those of us who also play games with multiplayer in addition to playing solo, um, sometimes other people explain the rules and they don't do a really good job of it. And then you play the game with them, and you're like playing the game for the first time, and they're like playing the game for like the tenth or twentieth time, and they just don't do a good job of making it an open and inviting experience. And you sort of come off it saying, "God, I never want to play that game again." <laughs> that was Power Grid for me. I think I've experienced that from the other side, unfortunately. <laughs> oh God, what happened? No, my wife often complains that I do a terrible job of explaining rules. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, that, me too. I don't have that problem so much. I'll 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 forget to mention a rule. Oh, and I'll remember it when it's relevant because oh, I just realized I can do something <laughs> powerful. It's like you know, and I don't intend to do that. But whether whether it's intent, I mean, whether people are telling me the truth or not, I've had some people who have actually requested that I explain games because apparently some people think I'm good at explaining games. Hmm, okay, so, I, I I appreciate that people think that at least. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to explain just about any game. Some of them I can. Uh, you know, my uh, wife is my wife is currently in a state where it doesn't matter if I'm explaining the game or anything. She doesn't want to learn new games. Oh. That's, that's her opinion. <laughs> reach the game threshold. Uh, it was very easy for her to reach. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, it so, takes a whole lot to push it over the uh, to push a new game on her. So, how is your game logging going? Oh, please! I'm done talking about it, Albert. Oh no! It's still going. Is it it's fine. okay? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's going fine. I mean, it's not like there's any news. If I ever give up on it or stop, I'll tell you. But currently, it's still going. Okay, and that's it. But I can tell you about some games that I've played recently mm-hmm. because I happen to have this game log going. Okay, what have you played? Would you like to know? Yes. Um, I have learned I am not very good at animal trivia. <laughs> Is this card line? Or something like that. This is this is fauna. Ah, this okay. is fauna, um, which can be solitaire friendly as long as you don't mind just trying to beat your own score. But it's essentially <laughs> it's a trivia game. You have a card that comes up. So say humpback turtle, 
Yeah, don't I, I know there's no such thing as a humpback turtle, but whatever. <laughs> humpback turtle comes up and it says you have to tell us what location it's in, what its total length is, and what its weight is. And so the board has a map of the world and it's got lines to show tail length, total length, and weight. Mm-hmm. And you have a bunch of cubes and you have to put the cubes out and yeah, you can guess where it is. So let's say you think that the the turtle is in, the humpback turtle is in Antarctica. So you'll put a cube on Antarctica. If you think it's in Indochina, you'll put it on Indochina. If you think it's two inches long, you'll put it on the two inches slot. And so you put it around and then if you're close, you get points. If you're exact, you get points. And then you total your points and you keep going until you get, you're supposed to, if you, it's supposed to be played multiplayer, but as with many games of this sort and ilk, there's no reason why you can't just, you know, play to see how many points you get over six cards, which is how I've tried this before. I'm not good at it. <laughs> I, I originally got introduced to this game multiplayer and I was lacking at like 15 points and people were like, oh, we're going to win. We're going to get 100 points. We're gonna... I'm like, I'm getting 15 points. And so someone else comes over and says, oh, can I help out? Because they wanted to come in and play the game. I'm like, sure, you can help me out. And it's like, you should do this answer. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to let you give all the answers because <laughs> you're apparently much more intelligent about this than I am. Uh, have you played Animal Cardline Animal? Same sort of thing, but not. simplified. So here it's just you're playing cards in the table next to each other and you're, you're lining them up um, like the card will have an animal and you're playing either for, for weight, longevity or length I think were the three things and so let's say you're playing for length you play the first card on the table and not every card gets placed rel- relative to the cards there on whether you think it's longer or shorter so like you play a, a lizard and an elephant and the next card you have is a cheetah does the cheetah go? In, is it shorter than the lizard between the two, or or longer? What kind of lizard, right? Any lizard, really. <laughs> Are you counting the tail? Yeah, let's say a gecko. So let's just say it's a Some gecko. Some of them have like really long tails. So you have to put the card down without knowing the length where you think it goes, and then you flip it over, and the answer's on the back. And your your idea is everybody you're playing in a group, and you're just trying to run out of cards. Whoever runs out first wins. So if you if you guess right, you place your card where it goes. If you guess wrong, you discard it and you draw another card. So you don't get to discard. You know, you didn't go down that way. So so the goal is to get as many right as you can. And it gets interesting. The more cards are on the table, the harder it gets. But I think that there's a bunch of other card line type games yes. just like that, too. Yes. I've played card line history games. Yeah, so there's Timeline, which is just yes. figuring out the date. And then they came out with Card Line. I think there's two or three card lines. And the cards have three different things on them. So, so you could choose which one to play. If you get really used to, to figuring out the animal lunch, you can now play weight, which is different, or, or age. Because, you know, some little tiny animals can live a lot longer than a big animal, or or not. You know, it just depends, so it becomes very interesting. It's a fun game. Are you better at it than I am at, at Fauna? Maybe. Sounds like it. You know, I could win. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about going on a car adventure? <laughs> that could work. But 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 we're we're digressing here because we're not talking solitaire stuff at all. I've tried playing timeline solo, but it's not much fun. Well, what about card venture? You can go on a solo card venture. I don't know this. Um, there was a Kickstarter a while back for card venture games, and the one I'm thinking of is Stowaway Fifty Two. Oh, okay, I remember that. Yeah, it's a fifty-two card choose your own adventure deck sort of thing. 
sort of thing. Yeah, it's 52 cards. It's it's essentially like a choose your own adventure book in a card game. Um this was a Kickstarter then it got re-released and I think it was picked up by AG. Just a second and we'll double check who the publisher is. But I happen to, a local bookstore is uh, going is closing down. Um and they had out for sale and discount the two card venture games. The Stowaway 52 was the original one. And then after the design was picked up by GameRight, not AEG, after the design was picked up by GameRight, um, GameRight apparently asked for a second card venture game to come out. And so they made jump ships. So Stowaway 52 is a card venture in space where you are, um, trying to sabotage an alien spaceship that you start the game already being there and jump ship is your pirate trying to steal treasure and not have your ship burned down or not float away into the, into this island to get lots of gold and both of the games have points on the cards so some cards are worth one point or five points or 20 points and in stowaway 52 Ostensibly, the goal is to get 300 points, which will mean that you've seen every single card. Every time you look at a card, there's a blurb of text or maybe an item and two options. And it'll say either pick this option and go to card red 9 or pick this option and go to card purple 13. And if you pick a card that you've already been to visit, then you lose. Uh, And you total up your score and you see how much you got. So to get a perfect score means you have to see every single card. Mm-hmm. It, theoretically, if you don't get a perfect score, the rules, they, they like rank your score. And every single score but a perfect score says that a horrible fate befalls you, essentially. Oh, gosh, okay. So, boy, that's strict. <laughs> it's all or nothing, huh? It really is all or nothing. <laughs> it's actually a, a fun game if you like those choose your adventure games. I've actually picked this up to play with my kids. Um, but it, I, I did try to do it myself because obviously I can't be super strategic with my kids. They want to be like, Oh, there's a ladder. I want to go to the ladder. I'm like, but guys, we probably don't want to go up the ladder because we've been to that area before. <laughs> no, but it's a ladder and ladders are cool. <laughs> all right, fine. We'll go on the ladder. So. When they're around, I can't be very strategic about my choices. But I've tried it myself to be strategic about my choices. And um, I have no idea how you ever will beat the game. Wow, okay. And, you know, it must be there's only one solution. It, it almost I don't know sounds if there's like only one a, solution. Yeah, it sounds like it's almost a puzzle instead of a game. Well, you start at a random place every time. Uh, but, you know, th- so, that shouldn't matter because there's, there's got to be a path where you get all through all 52 cards. And it's oh, loops, just right? One path. So if you know if you know the whole path, it doesn't matter where you start at. Huh. Right. Eventually, you'll go through the whole loop. Huh. So the trick is to find that one loop. I think so. That's weird. So it's so it ends up being more of a puzzle than a game in a way, because that's it has weird. one answer. I I don't know if that's true. That's just my interpretation. I have no idea. The other game, Jump Ship, is easier because it actually has like cards you can discard to get sort of extra lives. If you if you would otherwise die, you can discard one of these and you get to start over again mid adventure, so you don't lose all your progress. And that one, the you don't, it's not expected to get a perfect score. Uh, lower ranking scores still have good 
explanations of what happens for the for your results. So it's not expected that you have to get a perfect score in those ones. It's much much easier to fill accomplished in jump ship than it is in Stowaway Fifty Two. Mm, okay, they they sound neat though. Sunny. They are. And they've been picked up by GameRite. I didn't know that. That's cool. They were republished by GameRite after originally going to Kickstarter. Um, I mean, they claim that they're multiplayer, but that's just like a... Yeah, know, a group think. activity. It's a co-op. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, they, theoretically, you can do a chase as everyone's running around the ship trying not to pick the same thing that somebody else has already picked, but you know, I mean, we're, we're doing it sort of co op and that's I think the most fun. Okay. And played anything else? Uh, not really worth mentioning. Okay. I have played a few games. I finally played solitaire games in January. I didn't. My first solitaire game in January was not until like the twenty first. It was way late, and that was Yug. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yugdrissel. 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 Okay. Funny game. I really like that game. It is a, a game of Norse mythology in which you're you're playing the the Norse gods, trying to keep some of the villains of that mythology out of. Oh gosh, what's it called? Odin's home, basically. And it, it to me, it plays a lot like a States of Siege game, in that you have these bad guys advancing on a track and you're trying to push them back, and if anybody reaches the end of the track, you lose the game. Now it's a little more involved than that, but that Midgard. Not mid, no, not Midgard. Uh, I'm trying to remember it now that you had you didn't say the actual name. It's bothering me. Oh, <laughs> better. Um, you were Asgard. Yes, that's probably it. Yeah, I remembered it. Okay, but I think it's more than just Asgard. But maybe, but yeah, you're right. Um. But it is a really neat game. Looks great, and and it's challenging. And I got to play that again, and it's fun. I'd love to talk about it in the podcast someday, and and, and talk about just that game. But it is currently out of print and so expensive. It it you know it it wouldn't do many people much good to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, upset. Well, maybe we'll get republished. We tell again. everyone, hey, it's a great game. I was like, oh, but you can't have it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Want it? Can't have it. But uh, but maybe enough people would ask for it and it will get republished. Because it really, it should be pu- republished. I think it's really fun. Um, it's got a lot of neat things in it. I've also played Conquest of Paradise, which I do hope to talk about in the podcast at some point. It's a GMT game in which you're, you're playing Polynesian peoples, expanding and trying to, trying to expand your empire and conquer the, I guess, the South Pacific. And it's sort of a 4X type of game. I played Elder Sign. I finally got to play the um, the the Alaska expansion, Omens of Ice. I finally got to play Omens of Ice. Um, and that was neat. That was a lot of fun. I did not do very well, and I stopped. It was, it was longer than I thought it would be. It felt like it was going to go on for a while. Um, maybe it's just because I wasn't playing it well. I don't know. What is but, Omens of Ice? It is an expansion for Elder Sign. In which it is a different scenario. For an elder sign, you're exploring uh, the museum in Arkham, and going to different rooms and trying to get elder signs to lock out the the goo. Um, in Omens of Ice, you're going to Alaska on an expedition, 
and and doing the same thing there. So you, you're going to different location cards, and there's other things like you need to have supplies to survive the cold and and stuff like that. So it it adds more rules and just it's a neat scenario. It's a neat story. It was weird because my two characters in Alaska were um, and you've played Arkham Horror, so maybe you remember. There's one character that's a psychic lady, and the other one is a a jazz singer. <laughs> it's okay. like these these two people in Alaska uh, fighting great old ones. <laughs> just, it seemed a little strange, I, but you know, actually, I built a story around it and it made it interesting, but it just seems strange. And and the other game I've played finally another Arkham game. I I got Arkham Horror the card game and I played it. It was very exciting and and it's a lot of fun. Good. We'll have mm-hmm. to talk about it once that. Like I said, I think I still want to reserve too much my personal opinions on that until we get more into the next cycle. Okay. Yeah. Have you played a little, no, I played two games or a game and a half of that. Um, you are way behind on me. And, I am at like, <laughs> or something. oh, wow. But, but seeing how the mechanics work and having played the Lord of the Rings game, I could see how they could come out with many very interesting adventures. that would be very, very different from the first ones. I think there's huge opportunity for variety. Right. And being that the, the designer, which, by the way, that was a really great interview. I'm glad I got to hear it. Oh, sorry I was not part of it. <laughs> Being that he did um, the Lord of the Rings card game and seen the kind of variety he had in those adventures in, in the last few cycles, I, I'm sure they're going to have some, some very, really, really cool ideas. Very different ideas. I expect so. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so that was fun. Um, and that's it. That's all I've played in January. Basically. Well, I've cast that you play any Agent Decker. I have not. Do you remember Agent Decker? Oh, that was a print and play contest game. It was a print and play contest game. And I think I've mentioned a number of times that I really like it when solo games that do well in the print and play contest go on to get published. Mm-hmm. Agent Decker got uh, reworked somewhat and is getting published as Super Hot, the card game. Really? I've heard of Super Hot the Card Game. I didn't realize that was Agent Decker rethemed. It is Agent Decker rethemed, and some of the mechanics got reworked some. Uh, I mean, I don't fully... I mean, the problem is, when that, without having actually played it and just having looked at the videos, I'm like, oh, it looks an awful lot like Agent Decker. So I haven't, <laughs> I haven't really watched enough to be able to understand what the differences are between it and Agent Decker. And it may be worth asking the designer, what what exactly, for someone who's really familiar with Agent Decker, what exactly got changed? Um, that may be worthwhile to ask. Do you like the super hot video game? I, I don't know much about it at all, to be honest. I only know about the game because I was listening to another podcast today. Um, what is it? Draft Mechanic, which is a, a beer and game podcast. I think I've mentioned it before, and they were talking about the game. Sure. And uh, they went on there, and he said that he got a print-and-play version of the game and tried it out and really liked it and explained how it works a little bit and mentioned the video game. He said it's a a, a time-based video game where, where nothing happens first, unless you move. It's a first-person shooter uh, where nothing moves until you move. So you can basically pause the game as much as you like and take your time to plot and plan what it is that you're doing so it's not like high-intensity, high-octane. Um. And theoretically, I don't really get how that, I mean, in terms of how board game works, of course, time doesn't move unless you do, because that's how the board game works. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like it's just a turn-based game, right? Every time you take an action, something happens. That's how it was in Agent Decker. Okay. And I think that's how it is in this one. I mean, it still seems like it's the same basic idea that you have a you have your set of cards, and your cards can be either one type of thing or another type of thing. So in Agent Decker, I think it was sneak or punch were the two types of things, as I recall. And now it's like either red or gray. And you have to use your cards to try and get through all the obstacles, and you get through all the obstacles to win, or something on those lines. It, it it sounds like a roguelike game. You know what those are, right? I do. The, um, okay. But it's not. <laughs> it's not? Okay. I do, but it's not. It's just a, okay. a first-person shooter. It's actually each, in terms of the video game, each individual game is much short. Is Each individual level, rather, is short. Okay. But the, the whole nothing happens unless you move reminded me of that right away. Oh, that's, okay. that's exactly how those work, right? The roguelikes, you take a step, all the monsters move. Yeah, no, it's not like that. Short levels. Okay. But, I mean, they even yeah. put up the one-player guild as, as the award that they receive from the one-player guild on their Woo-hoo. Kickstarter. Cool. Okay. I got to check that out. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping it's going to be true to the theme of Agent Decker. I'm not such a huge fan of the super hot art. I liked the Agent Decker art more, but I understand that, you know, it's a much, excuse the pun, it's a much hotter theme to pick that <laughs> because there's going to be a lot of people who would get drawn in by being this, a card game of this video game. I have a feeling that would hit the shelves a lot harder. So I think he probably made the right decision by retheming that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the Kickstarter do do well. It's already got sixteen thousand dollars and twenty one days to go. Yeah, you know it, it's funny. I could see. I, I kind of don't like the art because it looks too digital, which again makes sense because of the theme. Yeah, but just not my thing. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. I'm the sort of person you know. Many people here, especially on this podcast, I think, are going to be the sort of people who more want to you know, hang out and not do that. (laughs) Hang Mm -hmm. out and not do, and not do video games. So I think that many of us don't want our board games to look like video games. I I have less issue with connecting between the two. Yeah. There you go. Yep. And so this is on Kickstarter right now and it's pretty cheap, right? The game is like 15 bucks. Mm Mm-hmm is not bad at all or for 30 30-ish dollars you get the game and a playmat and some other stuff so is this a kickstarter segment well yes i believe that was a kickstarter segment but i had actually planned on having another kickstarter segment i recorded an interview with andrew parks about his upcoming game dungeon alliance so let's take a listen to that I'm here with Andrew Parks, designer of quite a number of games. One of the favorites, I believe he was involved in the conversion of Mage Knight over to its Star Trek form, and also the designer of the upcoming Kickstarter game Dungeon Alliance. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Julius. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me on your show. Doing uh, my pleasure. Doing great. 
Uh, so tell me a bit about this new game, Dungeon Alliance. Well, this Dungeon Alliance uh, has really been a labor of love for us. It's something that we've wanted to do for a very long time. Um, and we've we've really always been in love with deck building games. And uh, Core Worlds was our, our first deck building game. And we've wanted to go back and revisit deck building and take a different look at what it meant to be a deck building game and what things could we change. And so we went in and said, all right, what would it be like to do a deck building game with miniatures in such a way that everybody starts with a different deck. So instead of the traditional deck building game where everybody starts with the same deck or maybe one card different, uh, what if every single card in every single starting deck was different? And so the way we approached that was to have uh, each of the players draft four different characters that they would be in command of, and each character in the game would have three cards that they were associated with. And so when you draft your four heroes, you'll now have these 12 cards and that's your starting deck. And so you never call these cards. You just keep building more cards in the deck to create synergy for your team. So everyone's initial decks are the same or they're different? They're all completely different. So in other words, um, if I have Krom the Half-Orc Assassin as one of my four characters... He has three cards, unique cards, just for him. And if I take Melinda, the Gnome Druid, she has three cards that are unique to her. So that will now be half of my starting deck. You've got completely different characters in your deck, uh, so therefore you're going to have 12 totally different cards. Very neat. Let's start with a couple of the basics, though, because I'm not sure if everyone who's listening has necessarily heard about Dungeon Alliance. Sure. So you've already told me that there's deck building, that there's minis. This is a competitive game, correct? That's correct. It is designed primarily as a competitive game, um, but there's also, of course, solo, uh, which we knew would be important for this kind of game. As soon as we started playtesting, my developer said, and where's the solo version? You must have a solo version for this game. <laughs> Who's your developer? We need to give him a plus one. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have a lot of different developers, but this, I'm, I think it was uh, Manny O'Donnell was the developer in question. Manny has been doing games with me for almost 20 years now, and uh, he's a major solo player. He's a, he's, a, he's a fanatic with Mage Knight board games, so I recruited him to do a lot of stuff with uh, Star Trek Frontiers, and uh, he also uh, was a co-designer on D&D Attack Wing. So, yeah, he definitely was like, you got to have a solo for this game, no question. All right. And you, what made you think immediately that this had to be a solo game? Because it's a dungeon-crawling game? Because it's deck-building? Right. Because it's, because it's a dungeon-crawling game, and we know that this medium is so popular with solo players. Um, but what made this game different was the fact that, um, like Arcadia... Uh, you have four characters that you're controlling. So we said, how are we going to do that solo? Because right now the way the game works is the the pace of the game is set by the players. Like you're all raiding the same dungeon from different directions. And when you meet up with each other, you can either fight each other or you can, you know, maybe just steal each other's monsters, kills, and that kind of thing. So we were like, how are we going to represent that as a solo game? And that's when we realized that really at that point, we had to make sure that the monsters themselves 
would be the interesting part of the solo experience. The way the normal game works, you control the monsters so that when it's not your turn and someone else is going, you're, you're going to control the monsters for that person. Um, so for this, we said, all right, we're going to create a deck of cards, but rather than have the deck of cards absolutely control the monsters, we're going to have this deck of cards give options for what the monsters want to do and let you decide which of those options they're going to perform so that when it's not your turn, you're still making strategic choices in the solo game. Um, so I'll give explain how that works in more detail because that that sounds like a really unique way of doing that. So as an example, um, each of the solo play cards, there's 16 cards, uh, has three different sections. So the first section is something that you must do, something like basic record keeping, like having cards be removed from the upgrade draft area or from the tile draft area, um, and. The second part is where the monsters are controlled, and it might say something like this. Uh, Pick the highest experience point monster. That monster either wants to attack an elf or a wizard, Um, and if he does, he'll attack at plus one, or he'll attack any hero at plus two. So now right away, you have several decisions to make. If you have several monsters that are worth the same high experience point value, you get to choose which monster's activated. And then if you have an elf or a wizard, you decide which of them is going to get attacked. Maybe you have an elf wizard. But even if you have an elf wizard or an elf or a wizard, you can say, my elf wizard is really in pain right now. I'm going to instead have this monster attack someone else, but the monster's going to get plus two instead of plus one. So you're making all these little AI decisions organically, um, but somebody else is going to really get pounded on at plus two. Uh, And now let's say there are no monsters who are on the board at the moment, like you haven't opened any doors. Uh, There's a third section called Otherwise that says, if you can't do any of the things in section two, you must do something in section three. And that might be something like, one of the, the highest experience point exhausted monster wakes up and attacks at plus three. So in that case, you're going to try to make sure that you've always got some monsters out there uh, so that you're not going to try to clear the whole dungeon out because then people are going to wake up and so on, and it's going to get really bad for you. So we encourage you to play in the same way that you play in the regular game, which is keep opening doors, keep things moving along. You don't ever want to get to the point where the dungeon is empty. Um, you want to always be fighting a horde of monsters in order to maximize your experience points. And how much time do you have to prepare for that card? So that was an, actually, it's great that you bring that up because my normal inclination was well, you just draw the card when it's the monster turn, and then you just do what it says and you just deal with it. And when Manny and my uh, one of the other developers, Matt Catron, uh, when they were playing it, um, they were saying that it's it was almost effectively random because they had no way to prepare for these things. And so we said, all right, let's try a version where uh, you flip the card before your turn. So you know during your turn what the monsters are going to do so you can have your... So if you see that something's going to happen if there's no monsters near your characters, you better open up a door. Um, 
So now during you, so you basically have your entire turn to prepare for what the monsters are going to do because the solo play card uh, is public and face up during your turn. Yeah, that when I saw that in the rules, it immediately reminded me of another recent game that came out, Wizard Academy, which gave you a full turn to prepare for the bad stuff that the game was going to be throwing at you. And I like that here, the solo cards that you guys are using, there's a lot of choices that you guys are presenting, and it gives you a lot of opportunity to really react to it. It's very deterministic in letting you figure out what you want to do. Right, and if you prefer to have something that's more random... Um, that will be an op in in our in our rule supplement. We're going to have many different variants for playing the game, and one of the variants is because I've played it the other way. Uh, I play tested it. it. For me, it was fun, but I could see for other people that it wouldn't be as fun because it wasn't, as you said, it wasn't deterministic enough. But you can play that. You draw the card during the monster phase. It's a lot more chaotic, um, and if you're into that kind of chaos, that's an option. One of our philosophies in designing this game was let people play the way they want to play so you know if you're not playing solo you can play with or without pvp because like i'm normally not a pvp guy with a game like this i want to interact with my opponents indirectly um but we said we know with this game that these guys are going to meet up in the middle of the dungeon they're going to want to start pounding each other sometimes and so that's why we added pvp as an option and actually i've discovered i prefer to play the game with the pvp because the characters don't get knocked out permanently so there's a lot of really funny things you can do like telekinesing the other guy into a wall and uh earthquakes and all kinds of fun stuff and it really makes for a very exciting pvp experience um so i actually being a non-pvp guy really enjoy the pvp but you can just turn it off before the game begins Interesting. Again, that really reminds me of what was done for Mage Knight, where you had a lot of those choices. Did you want to play a PvP, co-op, uh, just PvE, and pick how it is that you want to set up the scenario? Was that inspired by Mage Knight, or was that just something you decided you wanted to do? Absolutely. We were working on Star Trek Frontiers when we started working on uh, Dun- when we started working on Dungeon Alliance, and I I w- marveled at all of the different variants and just the fact that. One of the reasons why the game is so popular, besides the ingenious mechanisms, is the fact that it there's different types of people who like to play games in different ways. And the, it's the way the market has evolved, and I think the reason why the board game market is growing so fast, so exponentially, is that designers are realizing that their stamp on the game isn't the most important thing. It's their job instead to facilitate a game that can be played the way that players want to play it. Because when you play a game, you kind of take ownership over it. And as a designer, you know, we can be kind of egotistical, and we want people to play our way. But I think that what we're discovering as designers is that it's our job to facilitate a medium that allows people to play the way they want to. So I know that you had a lot of experience in building this from Mage Knight and from Star Trek Frontiers. Tell me about how the hero turns work. Was that also inspired by Mage Knight? Um, a little bit, except for the fact that in Mage Knight, you're controlling one hero. And I think one of the things that's also very different from Mage Knight is that in Mage Knight, in order to do basic activities like moving and attacking, you need to have cards or at least play cards sideways that allow you to do that. So the cards essentially are verbs 
um, that you have your character, which is a noun, and you have verbs that you are performing through card play. In Interesting method of comparing it to nouns and verbs. Definitely. And in Dungeon Alliance, um, we wanted you to for basically have your nouns on the table at all times. So your four character cards are face up on the table. They never go into your deck. So those are your nouns, right? So we also wanted to have the verbs always available to those characters. So each character, even if you don't play any cards, can move, open doors, and attack. So the deck of cards then essentially becomes adverbs and adjectives. In other words, I can do this this much better. So instead of rolling a die for success, I can play a card to complement. So my my assassin, my half-orc assassin I mentioned earlier, um, he has a card called Assassinate that if he's hidden, and there's a card that lets him hide, uh, or if he um, attacks someone in their back, then he'll get plus three to his attack against that person. If he doesn't have the Assassinate card, he can still attack fine. Um, but he can attack so much better if he has the assassinate card. Uh, and to, in order to hide, he'd have to have the hide card. So in order to hide, he has to make sure that none of the minis can see him. Then he pops out and attacks with his assassinate. So all those things are enhancing his actions. But if I needed to move him without any of his cards, I could do so. So part of the strategy is sometimes to say, all right, this character is going to take more of a secondary role this round and build things up for these other characters so that he's going to enhance them or he's going to heal or something of that nature. So uh, so our philosophy was let the characters do whatever they want to do. Don't have anyone ever say, I can't open a door this turn because I don't have the right card or I can't walk um, or I can't swing. But instead say, yeah, but I'm going to swing really well because I have the critical strike card in my hand and I've been holding on to it for several turns waiting for this character to go. Um, one of the things we also were inspired from uh, Mage Knight was the fact that you can keep cards from turn to turn, that there's a lot of hand management in the game. Um, and in fact, another thing is when you draft a card, it goes right into your hand uh, rather than the discard pile. And you said that the randomness is done by which cards you have in, de- in your deck instead of by rolling a die. Is there any randomness or anything like that to the game? There is... Um uh, a, a one dungeon die that comes with the game, and some of the enemies use that die. You will often not use that die. If you have a special power, you might have something that boosts you by that die. The die gives you a range from zero to three. So zero, zero, one, one, two, three are the pips. Um, but there could be things like opening secret doors or opening locked doors. And when we first started playtesting the game, we said it was just a straight die roll. And if you had a card, you could enhance it. And what we realized soon in playtesting that it was getting frustrating for people to not have to deal with luck in battle, but to have to deal with luck with things like finding secret doors, opening locked doors. So what we did was we said, all right, let's let characters be careful. So I can spend movement points to add to my die roll before the die roll and even guarantee my success. So if I come up to a secret door... I can say, all right, I'm going to spend three move points, and I am not even going to have to roll the die. I'm just going to open that secret door. Or I could say, I'm going to, I really need my move points for after I get through the secret door, so I'm going to take a chance and roll the die. So now I can push my luck if I'm that kind of a player. But if I'm someone like Andrew Parks, myself, I'm horrible at rolling dice. 
I'm terrible at rolling dice. All my best plans will be laid to waste if I must roll a die. So we have set up the game in such a way that if you like to roll dice, you can do that before you open doors and so on. But if you want to be careful, you can do that too. You can plan ahead. Why did you feel it was necessary to have the luck for opening doors but not for combat i think that for many games it's almost the reverse that it's easier to open doors than it is to fight great that's a great question you know when we first started making the game um we realized that we were going to just use cards for everything and so in order to open up a secret door or to open a lock you needed a card to do it and that would be mostly the rogue characters. And we realized that people were going to frequently get into dead ends, and they're going to have to walk all the way back if they don't have a rogue. Um, or they could have a rogue, and they just don't have the card. So we scratched our heads, and we said, that's not fun. Who wants to spend their time just walking through the dungeon to, you know, we want people to always be able to find a secret door if there's a wall abutted up against another wall. So we said, all right, so what we're going to need to do in that situation is let people who aren't rogues look around for those walls and doors um, and roll a die to do it. And then after playtesting, we said, okay, that works, but now it's still no fun if I'm sitting here rolling a die and I'm just having bad luck. So the die was basically something for you when you didn't have the correct card. And then we took it one step further during playtesting and said, well, okay, it's going to go one step further. And now if you don't have the card uh, and you're a terribly unlucky person... You can just devote your uh, movement points towards making sure you can continue the game. Even if that one character is devoting themselves that turn to finding that door so your big paladin can go blasting through there. Um, we, you know, Anytime you're not playing the game, you're not playing the game. It's why people hate losing turns in games, right? You know, <laughs> Right. If I hit a dead end, yeah, it might slow me down, but that's it. I need to keep moving forward if I want to. Now, just to focus on another aspect of the game that I thought was interesting, um, you mentioned a bit ago that there were tiles and a tile draft in the game. Right. That was another thing. You know, I've played certain games, and once again, I'm an unlucky person. And I guess that's good for a game designer to be unlucky when they play games because it helps them compensate for that luck. You know, you can't – I don't – I like there to be chance in the game, but I don't like to hit, hit a brick wall. Um, so with the tiles – uh, with most dungeon crawl games, you when you open a door uh, or at the start of your turn, you draw the tile randomly uh, and you place it down on the table. So we said, wouldn't it be fun if there were a couple of tiles face up? Since we, this is a drafting game, after all, it's a deck building game. What if we could draft the tiles? So if I see a, a room filled with zombies and I have a character who's going to do a big fire blast into that room, awesome, I'm going to take that. But there might be a room with a big ogre, and I might have a character who just has one really big attack, and it doesn't want to waste it on one zombie when in a room full of zombies. This is, you know, so I'm going to choose that room. And what what it also does is it keeps the game interactive because now, oh, you took the ogre room. I really wanted the ogre room, but now now there's going to be another card to replace it, and maybe there'll be another one. So it, it keeps that if we're not playing PvP, we're not only interacting by possibly kill-stealing when we meet up with each other. But right from the very beginning of the game, we're interacting on three levels. We're interacting because we're drafting tiles from the same pool, we're drafting upgrades from the same pool, and we're controlling each other's monsters. And then when we meet up in the center of the dungeon, which is about, 
I'd say 60% of the way into the game, or sooner if you guys start beelining towards each other. Um, then when you get to that point, even if you're not playing PvP, you can share monster kills. And so monsters take damage tokens of your faction color. And so you may whack a monster, and I may run up and do more damage to that monster, so I'll get more XP for that monster than you will. And and when you're playing solo, what's the goal of the game? To get through the whole dungeon? Right, to try to get through the whole dungeon to get as many points as you can in four rounds. And at the end of... The, so basically, whenever you kill a monster or when you accomplish certain challenges in the game, you gain experience points. Those experience points are used to draft new cards, but they're also your victory points. So when I draft a card, I take my experience point token and I flip it face down. And now it's just victory points. Um, and at the end of the game, it doesn't matter whether I've spent my experience points or not. All of them count as victory points. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, I lost track of what was your original question. <laughs> so what's the goal in solo? How do you win? Oh, so basically, you're trying to get as many points as you can, but for every tile... So there's nine There's nine tiles in the solo game um, because you have a different like dungeon frame that you build at the start of the game, like puzzle pieces and that will hold a certain number of tiles. So every dungeon tile that hasn't left that deck by the end of the game, you're going to lose four points. And every monster and challenge that hasn't been faced on the table, you're going to lose one point. So your goal is to raid this dungeon, and over the course of four rounds, get to as many rooms as you can, and encounter everything that you can. Um, and then basically you'll have a score at the end. So your score will be all the points you've received, minus four for every room you didn't open, minus one for every critter that you've uh, encountered that you haven't dealt with or every challenge you haven't dealt with. Sounds cool. And just uh, mention one more time, you said there are minis in the game. The minis are for the heroes, the monsters. What do the monsters look like? Uh, the monsters are, are going to be tokens. They're double-sided. And one of the advantages of using tokens instead of minis for the monsters was that it didn't limit our creativity for the types of monsters. We're allowed to have a whole bunch of different types of monsters. The other nice thing is that although we have cards that have the special powers of the monsters listed, it was nice having the tiles that have the stats of the monsters right on them, mm -hmm. uh, and also so that you could flip them face down after they're exhausted, because each monster's only going to move once per round. The minis are for the heroes, and the heroes um, match up with your the pictures on the cards, so that you can always see which characters correlate based on those pictures. And we've also in, are going to be including those little plastics... Uh, snap-on bases so that all of my if i'm the blue player and i'm using the blue damage tokens all of my characters will have the blue snap-on bases because my characters may not want to stay together in the same room they may want to run into different rooms and that's entirely possible in this game you you, you have the complete freedom you're not like moving in this room all of my characters move in you could, it's a tactical game. You can do whatever you want to do. So you could you could keep two characters together on one side, two characters on the other side, and since I'm taking turns moving, it doesn't lengthen the game in any way. And is that just for the Kickstarter that has those plastic pieces, or is that the retail copy also? That's the retail copy also. Basically, there's the retail copy of the game, um, and what we're offering to backers of the Kickstarter is the first expansion for the game, which won't be released until months after the regular game releases retail, um, they're going to get all the components of the expansion. And the size of the expansion 
Uh, not only are they not paying for the expansion, but the size of the expansion will grow with the stretch goals so that it's going to start off with one miniature and five cards or six cards. But if we hit stretch goals, it could eventually have four miniatures, 20 cards. Then it could have bonus treasure cards. Who knows what's going to be in there? It's all based upon how well the campaign does. Whatever ends up in that expansion, the players are going to get it for free. And then on top of that, we also have an alternate art exclusive um, because we know that for some people, uh, they want to have exclusives in a Kickstarter, but then other people get justifiably upset if those... Uh, affect gameplay. So we have Epic Hero alternate art cards so that you can play with epic versions of the heroes with new art and new flavor text, but it doesn't affect their statistics. So therefore, if you don't get in on the Kickstarter and you buy the game after it goes retail, you're not going to be missing any gameplay elements. But if you were a Kickstarter backer, not only will you have the expansion early and free, but you'll have these special Epic Hero cards that you can brag and show people, um, but they don't affect gameplay. And how much does that cost? The uh, the main Dungeon Alliance game will retail for eighty dollars, um, and on the Kickstarter, that's basically the package is for eighty dollars. Uh, but then you get the other elements, the expansion and the exclusive art cards, at no additional cost. Um, so however big the stretch goals go, you get everything for that $80. And then there's really only two main packages. There's a couple others for bulk. Um, but basically there's the main package that we talked about for $80. And then for $120, you can also get a set of all the miniatures painted. Uh, it's completely separate from the game. So you'd actually have two sets of the miniatures, unpainted and painted. And that will not only be the 17 characters in the base set, but every character that ends up making it into the expansion, you will also get that as part of the painted mini set. So that will also grow with the Kickstarter. And this is coming to Kickstarter on February 6th. So it's going to be dropping uh, very soon after this episode releases, if not already by the time this episode releases. Very cool. I will say I am extremely excited. I'm really anticipating this game. I know that you definitely have a history of some excellent games designs you. in your past portfolio, and this one's looking really cool. This is one I'm very excited to see come out. Thank you so much, Julius. Yeah, and we, we've got a print-and-play segment. So maybe we should put that now. Nah. Come on. Don't want to. We've got a print-and-play segment. Don't want to. You can't make me. You can't make me. <laughs> I'm doing the editing this time. I guess you can make me. Hi, this is the Print and Play Patrol of the One Player Podcast. I'm Chris, and today I'm going to be talking about some light solitaire games that you can take on the go with you and don't require any assembly at all. These are really easy games to just print, play, and go. So the games I'm talking about today are Rolling Thunder by Lloyd Krasner, F-14 Tomcats by Marcus Solo, and Malta Convoy, also by Lloyd Krasner. And these games all appear on Lloyd's website, Warp Spawn Games. So if you aren't familiar with Warp Spawn games, uh, this website 
uh, typically just lists the rules of games. So he'll put out a new game and it has the rules and it has a list of components that you need to make yourself. When these new games are released, they don't come with cards that you can print right away. Uh, instead, what he'll do is he'll have some instructions for how to make the cards. And typically, for, for most of the games, they're pretty simple. It'll be like, you know, you want to make 10 cards with the number 6, and maybe write the word soldier, and then 4 cards with the number 5, and write the word commander. And so you could just use index cards or, or, or make something really simple in Excel, something like that. Uh, but when the games are released, those, these things don't actually exist. It's just a list of components. Uh, so for a lot of these games, people have made components over the years and put them out on Board Game Geek or, or other websites uh, where you can download them. So some of the games have things you can download, um, including the ones I'm going to talk about today. These are not games where you have to make your own components, although you certainly could. But uh, somebody has put together maps for these. Um, but like I said, there's no cards in, in these in any of these three games. It's just uh, a map that you print out. Then you need some dice and a pencil, and you're good to go. So a few things to be advised about with Warp Spawn games, and these apply here. Warp Spawn is great in a lot of ways, especially if you're a solo player. There's tons and tons of solitaire games released there. Uh, you can find all sorts of themes, all sorts of... Um, you know, different types of games that are, are solitaire, many of which have components already for you to use, and so you can just jump in and start playing. Bad thing is a lot of times these games are not super play-tested. Um, you're going to find holes in the rules sometimes. Uh, it can be hard to uh, figure out uh, exactly what the rules are trying to explain, Um and all that being said, uh, the designers are typically very, very responsive. If you post a question on BoardGameGeek, um, they'll jump in and help answer it um, or, or modify the rules to, to clarify them. Um, but in some ways, you're kind of serving as a playtester on these games. Um, now, the three games I'm talking about today, I don't think that really applies. I think these games have been out for a while and they've been played enough that the rules are pretty straightforward so you don't need to worry about you know being super confused about how they work uh it's just just some advice if you're going to uh you know dig deeper onto the website and look at other games but so the games i'm talking about today rolling thunder f14 tomcats and malta convoy so i'm going to kind of walk through these games so they're they're ha they have a lot of similarities between them so some of these details i'm talking about are going to apply to multiple games but um, so all, all of these games are, are war-themed. There's been a lot of discussion on the One Player podcast recently about the differences between a war game and a war-themed game. And these ones are definitely um, war-themed. There's not strategy and tactics involved. There's, there's not those um, kind of tough decisions you have to make in a war game and uh, combat resolution tables and any of that stuff. These are very much war-themed. So first is Rolling Thunder, bombing missions in the Vietnam War. And in this game, you're making a, a trip from your home base and kind of flying a, a circle run around the map board. So the map board is basically a series of spaces, each one numbered one, two, three, four, all the way uh, around the circle. And it joins back at space number one. And they're connected by a line. So there's no 
deciding to go to one circle or the other you just go in order from one to two to three to four so it's it's um, a very simple progression through the map so the point of this game is to find targets and destroy them and you determine this where these things are and what type of targets they are just by die roll so at the start of the game the first thing you're going to do is roll a dice to determine where the first target is so if you roll a four you'll count out along the line one two three four spaces and you'll mark the fourth one as a target and then you roll again to determine what type of target it is and depending on what you roll determines if it's the Ho Chi Minh Trail or a strong point or a staging area and so you just make a note of that on the map board and then you'll start moving your planes through the spaces so every time you move into a new space so the first time you move into space number one and um, you, you'll roll a die to see, have I made an enemy encounter here? And you, you, if you roll a one, then you have made an enemy encounter. And if you roll anything else, um, then the enemies have not detected you and you just move right on through. Uh, so if you do encounter an enemy, then the next thing you do is you roll a die to determine what type of enemy you encountered. And that can be either ground missiles or um, MiG planes that attack you. So you roll again to determine which type, and then you roll to see uh, what type of your planes they're firing at. And you've got uh, a bit of an armada with you. You've got uh, thuds, you've got weasels, you've got... Um, several different types of planes and, and these are all marked up on the map board for how many planes you have and so they're going to attack a different type of plane every time determined by die roll and these planes can try to evade the attack they can try to shoot down the attack um, but all of this stuff is just determined by die roll so when you encounter an enemy you go through several different um, rolls to, to see what happens and if you're able to shoot down the enemy and it's just kind of a prescribed sequence that you go through. There's not a lot of decisions to make. It's just rolling to see what happens. When you do come to a target, the big decision that you make in the game occurs at this point. You start the game with 20 thud bombers, and you choose how many of these planes are going to drop their payload. And once a plane has dropped its payload, it's not going to be able to do anything else in the game. So you basically have 20 shots and you have to determine how to allocate them. So you'll choose, I'm going to put uh, three of my planes dropping bombs, for example, and then you roll a die three times, uh, once for each plane, and if you roll a five or a six, then you've destroyed the target. So the more planes that you choose to allocate, the greater your chances of being able to hit that uh, five or six and, and be able to destroy the target. If you don't destroy the target, um, you don't get another chance. You just have to move on to the next spot. And once you pass a target spot, you roll again. Whether you've destroyed it or whether you didn't, you roll again. And you count the number of spaces that you rolled. So if you roll a two, you count out two spaces ahead of you, and that's the next target. And you just go through the sequence again. You determine what type of target it is, and um, then you work your way up there, determining if you've had an enemy contact uh, as you move through the spaces on your way to the target. And you repeat this process throughout the game. So you don't know how many targets you're going to encounter. If you roll fives and sixes for how many spaces out the target is, then you're going to have a lot less targets in the game. If you roll ones and twos and threes, you're going to have a lot more targets uh, because they're occurring more frequently. So as you're allocating your thud bombers, trying to determine 
um, how many to give to each, each target is a little bit challenging just because you don't know how many are going to be left. If you run out of bombers, uh, I don't, you don't get to make uh, any more bombing attempts on the targets, and so you miss out on the points for those. So each type of target is worth a certain amount of points. So if you're able to roll and determine that the target is um, uh, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, it's only worth two points. But if you can find a strong point, that's worth a lot more points. And so all of this is is random, uh, of course, as you're, you're rolling to determine what these targets are. But if you can get frequent targets and get high value point targets, you can get a lot more points in the game. So that's Rolling Thunder. The next game I want to take a look at is F-14 Tomcats. Uh, this game is set in 1987 during a Middle East battle, and it's not very specific which battle it is, and it's, it's kind of an odd scenario. Uh, the rules themselves state right up front that F-14 planes never did solo bombing missions, so it's based on a real-time scenario. It's, a, you know, this, this Middle East setting, but not a battle that ever actually happened. So it, it's kind of an unusual setup for the game. But it's very similar in some ways to Rolling Thunder. Once again, you've got a circular path that you're traversing, uh, interspaced with spaces uh, that you travel to. In this one, you don't have several different planes that you're traveling with though you just have a single solitary plane that you're piloting uh, and you have the same kind of rules as you move through a space you roll for enemy encounter and, and things like that so it's very similar in that way to rolling thunder but the main differences in this game is that here you only have two targets and at the very start of the game you roll two dice and you add them together and count out that number of spaces and that's target one and then you roll two dice again and count out that number of spaces from the first target, and that's your secondary target. And that's so you know exactly where the targets are going to be uh, before you even start playing, and you know what the targets are going to be because you've, you've rolled to determine those as well. So as, you, as you're moving through the game, you're going to be encountering enemies. As you move from space to space, you do the same kind of roll to determine if you've had enemy contact in that space. And what's different about this game, instead of having different planes that have different attack probabilities as Rolling Thunder does, in this game your F-14 is equipped with several different weapons. You have different types of missiles and you have machine guns, and each one of them has a different probability for hitting an enemy or hitting a target. And you have a limited supply of these weapons, so you can choose to use these weapons on any enemies you encounter to help shoot them down and be able to evade them safely. Or you can choose to use them on your targets, which you, you want to do. That's how you score the main points in the game is by destroying your targets. But it, it, you have to kind of decide, how am I going to allocate my weapons? You know, I'm being attacked by enemy fighters, so I don't want to use my missiles that have the highest probability of hitting because I need those for my targets, but, you know, I have limited machine gun fire as well so you kind of have to balance this out and as with rolling thunder you don't know how many times you're going to be dealing with enemy fighters during the game you know that you only have two targets to attack but you could be attacked uh, very rarely or very frequently so allocating that ammo and, and your different type of weapons is a little bit of you've got to make some decisions and there's some luck uh, based on there based on how many times you're going to have to use that ammo to begin with so and this game kind of follows that same path. You go around the circle uh, to each space in order and determine if you're being attacked, attack the target if you're there, and then uh, try to return back to home base safely, and you win the game. And you score points just based on if you were able to destroy your targets or not. 
This game also brings in some additional rules for playing it multiple times. So if you want to play over and over and over, you can keep track of your your kills from game to game. How many enemy fighters did you bring down? How many targets did you destroy? And you can earn different ranks and have different scores that uh, accumulate through your different games. One of the ranks has you playing the game 50 times, and you can get the highest rank in the game through that. I have a hard time picturing myself wanting to play this 50 times, and especially keep track of it 50 times. I find this game's kind of fun enough just for a quick 10-minute run-through and do the bombing run, and then you're done. A final game in the series I want to talk about here is Malta Convoy. This game, of course, based on the Malta Convoy of World War II, where the island of Malta was being besieged by Italian and German forces, and the population there was basically starving. They were in really desperate straits, running out of supplies, so the Allies ran a convoy through the ocean uh, to get to the island. Uh, Several ships went there and were bombarded by German U-boats and and aircraft uh, trying to get these supplies to the island of Malta. So this game is trying to simulate that. Uh, So it's a little different than Rolling Thunder and F-14 Tomcats in that there's a distinct starting destination and and ending destination. There's not a circle that you're going around and coming to the same spot, but it is similar that you're just going from space one to space two to space three. You're not making decisions about, you know, could I try to go, uh, you know, this way to evade the enemies. You're, You're just going from space to space. Once again, also in this game, you're rolling a die to determine if you're being encountered by an enemy. So this game adds some rules for the enemy contact role that are different than the other two games uh, because they carry from turn to turn. So there's roles uh, where you might see an enemy reconnaissance plane. And then on your next roll, you get a plus two modifier applied to your roll on the next turn because they've seen you. You know, it's just a plane. They haven't attacked you, but they've seen you and they've let the, the German army know where you are. So you roll a higher roll, and the higher you roll, the more likely you are to meet the enemy or meet stronger enemy. Um, So when you do encounter an enemy, the next thing you'll do is you'll roll, and you'll see how many are there. And then you'll roll to see which type of your ships they're attacking. And you've got um, cargo ships, you've got aircraft carriers, you've got destroyers, you've got several different types of ships that are in your convoy. And the enemy is going to attack one or the other. And then looking at the types of ships you have, if you have aircraft carriers, you can help automatically reduce the number of enemy fighters. All of this stuff is happening by die roll or happening automatically. There's no decisions being made in any of this. This game probably has the most random factors determining the course of gameplay of any of the games I'm talking about today. Even the length of the game, the size of your fleet, all of this stuff is determined randomly. So the first thing you do when you start the game is you roll a die to see how many turns you're going to add to the game. And then you roll a die several times to see how many destroyers you have and how many aircraft carrier you have and how many cargo ships you have. You just keep rolling this die and and determining all these things. And those things all determine your score. The more ships that you lose, the lower your score gets. You start with 100 points and every time a ship is destroyed, you subtract points. So if you have less ships to work with, that can affect how many points you lose in the game. It's kind of an odd setup. The The other games are set up with you have this many planes you're flying with or this many weapons you're flying with. And this game sets up very, very randomly. And it probably has the fewest decisions of any of the games and the least consequential decisions. 
really the only decision that you make in Malta Convoy is there's four special actions and you can use each one time. You choose to, to do a special action and they, they basically ad- adjust the probability for events that occur during the turn. So one of them might say, okay, we're going to reduce your enemy contact roll by two to make it harder for the enemy to see you. Another one splits up your fleet so that if an enemy does see you, they're not able to attack uh, you know, every ship that you have because your fleet is all split up. There's also a special action you can take that makes it so the enemy doesn't attack your cargo ships. So basically, you go through these processes. You, you move a space, determine if there's an enemy contact. If there is, you deter- to determine you know, how that attack goes, and then you move to the next space and repeat the process. And finally, uh, you, you, you make it to the island of Malta, and you determine your score based on how many ships are, are remaining when you complete the game. So my final thoughts on these games. Obviously, I think it should be clear uh, from talking about these. These games offer very limited decisions. As you go through these games, it's basically you're rolling a die and you're finding out what happens. Basically, it comes down to I move into a space and I roll a die to see if I'm getting attacked. If I am getting attacked, I roll a die to see what kind of unit is attacking me. And then I roll a die to determine who they're attacking Uh, out of my fleet or out of my convoy. Then you roll a die to see, am I able to evade? And you roll a die to see, am I able to intercept? So you're still getting kind of that narrative experience of what happens, but without being weighed down by the details of something like B-17 that takes quite a while to play. Each of these games has a theme, and they're they're interesting themes. I think they'd, they'd be each one of them would be an interesting game, and many games have been made out of these themes. But these games don't make a great use out of their theme. I mean, basically, you could play this game just drawing a series of spaces in a circle and play the exact same game, uh, just following the rules and kind of making notes about what type of enemies you're encountering and things. There's nothing on the map board that really ties you in to the feeling of, I'm in the Vietnam War, or I'm in a Middle East battle, or I'm on the Malta convoy. These games are very, very abstracted, and the themes are incredibly loosely tied on. There really isn't anything that draws me in, and I don't think there was a big attempt to make these odds realistic with the weaponry uh, available for Vietnam or, or things like that. It's just, it's an abstract narrative, but doesn't really tie into the themes that they have positive things on these these games don't require any construction at all you just print the map and you're ready to play Uh, most of them are really low ink so you could print multiple copies of them and you know just have them available to play a quick game and then grab another sheet if you want to play again just write all over the paper and throw it away when you're done Alternatively, you could laminate them and use them with a dry erase marker and use them multiple times. All these games are really low ink, except for F-14. has kind of this stylized background, which looks really nice, but really takes up a lot of ink. It's, it's, it's kind of inefficient. So these games are lacking in decision. So if you are really looking, you know, if you're the kind of solitaire gamer that wants a game where you're making tough decisions and you're you're working to solve something or you know use your your deductive reasoning to solve the best scenario in a game or or really have a brain burner these games are not for you i think these games are still a lot of fun i enjoy that narrative experience of playing them 
where I kind of think they're best is if you're on a bus commuting to your job or you're on an airplane and you're during that section where you can't have electronic devices, you know, the plane is taxiing or something and you just want to play something that takes 10 minutes and there's no game pieces to drop on the floor. These are kind of those perfect games for those times where you just have a few minutes to play and you're not really looking to burn all your brain cells, you know, trying to figure out a hard problem. It creates a fun experience as you play these games. There's kind of that fun narrative of, you know, how many times did I get attacked and how many times did I survive? But really, these games are not going to be the kind of thing that you're you're pulling out for uh, a deep game solitaire session. These are these are time killers and they're fun, but they're they're not going to be those kind of games that you're going to want to play over and over and over again to try to figure out the the, the best way to beat them because there's so much randomness. There really isn't a best way to beat them. But I do recommend them. They're a quick print, uh, just a single page, and you can play them anywhere, anytime. Perfect game to have on the go. So I recommend them for the for the type of game that they are, and I hope you guys enjoy them, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks. If you'd like to reach me, you can find me at chanson2794 on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me directly at chris at oneplayerpodcast.com. Something banquet? I don't know. How many people are going to be there? Maybe you could do that. I have no idea. I, don't, <laughs> I really debate if I even want to deal with it. All right. So, so we've been talking for a while, and by now, Chris's segment should be done. Are you sure? We're not going to listen to it to make sure? Uh, I'm just going to go with my gut instinct. All right, fine. So let's talk about our game now. All so right. like we were talking about before, we're going to be reviewing today Manhattan Project Energy Empire. Albert, have you ever heard of the original Manhattan Project? I have. I even heard of the card game. Well, I know you've heard of the card game because I reviewed <laughs> the card game months ago. Yes, I remember that. I do remember that. And I'm sure you remember my comments on that. Well, let me say, this one is great. We'll, we'll start oh, okay. Super big fan of this one. It's pretty cool. But let me tell you a bit about the game first. Um, mm-hmm. So, in Manhattan Project Energy Empire, which from now on I'm just going to refer to as Energy Empire, every player is going to have their own set of player mats. The game plays one to five players, so they're various different colors. On your mat, you have an environment. Uh, the top left of the of your player mat is going to have five air spaces, five four spaces, and five water spaces. Over the course of the game, you are probably going to be putting pollution tokens on those spaces. The goal of the game is to have the most amount of points at the end of the game. You get points various different ways. Having unpolluted environment is one way to get points at the end of the game. So if you can either keep pollution from getting on your environment board... Or, later on, cleaning up pollution from your environment board, you will get points. Along the bottom of your player mat are space to store all the different types of resources. Money, plastic, steel, science, and petroleum oil. Uh, There's also places to put your workers, to put your achievement tokens, and to put your dice and your energy. It's two separate things. You have energy tokens and you have energy dice. So that all goes on your player mats. Um, this is a worker placement game. Probably should have said that back in the beginning, but this <laughs> is a worker placement game. So everyone's going to have a set of different colored, a uh, set of different colored workers in each of the five different player colors. 
interestingly, the workers have different art on them, even though they are functionally all identical. I have to explain this every single time I open it up, because for some reason, I say, everyone, pick up your three workers. Just pick up three of them. Everyone's like, but which one are the workers? And they're like trying to figure out without asking. And at one point in time, I've done this just... At, at this point in time, I do it just to see what the reaction is when I'm teaching the game for new. <laughs> um, but then I tell them, no, 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 they're all, <laughs> they're all considered workers. They're all the same word. You don't have to find the actual worker ones. Um, so everyone has their own worker tokens, and you'll be putting your workers out on the main player board on one of different wor- spots to do things. Most of the actions will let you change resources into other things. So for example, you can go somewhere to buy various buildings and buildings are little cards that are out on the board and you'll be able to buy one of them. Newer ones are cheaper than older ones. Uh, and then they'll slide down as, as you buy some of the cheaper ones and then we'll make the other ones cheaper, a common mechanic. Um, so you can go out and you can buy those new buildings or you can put it out on one of other spaces to get some petroleum oil or to get money or to get plastic or steel or to change money into new workers or to get energy dice. One of the spots lets you get energy dice, which is one of the main ways of getting energy on your turn. I will get back to why energy is important once I get back around to the energy portions. So, On your turn, you can put out a worker on the board in one of those spaces. The board is divided roughly by thirds. There's the green area, the brown area, and the yellow area, which the game calls government, industry, and commerce. I go by green, brown, yellow, because I don't really see a strong connection between the two. I guess maybe if you read all the cards to the theme, it makes more sense. But anyway, green, brown, yellow. So when you put (laughs) something in a color type, you also get to activate any buildings you have of that type. So if you, so the buildings come in the three different colors also. There's green, brown, yellow. If you put a worker in a green area, you can then activate all of your green buildings if you wish. Activating buildings requires putting a worker on that building also. So you'll have to first put out a worker in the structure market, and then you'll have to put a worker or an energy on the government uh, on the uh, building card in order to be able to activate it cards similar to other worker spaces will let you get more resources or convert some resources to other ones or get points or do other nifty type things so that's the one type of thing you can do in your turn which is called a work turn the other type of thing you can do is you can generate Instead of taking a turn to put out workers, after you've put out, theoretically after you put out enough workers that you want to stop putting out workers, you'll then be able to generate. This is not like in something like Caverna, where everyone will go around putting out as many workers, and once you put all your workers, rounds over and everyone will take a chance to collect. It doesn't work that way. At any point in time, you can, instead of taking a turn to put out a worker, you can pick back up all of your workers. It's called taking a generate turn. When you generate, the first thing you can do is you can claim achievements. We'll get back to claiming achievements later. Um, so, But the first thing you can do is you can claim achievements. You'll then take back all your workers from the boards, clearing up those spots, and discard any energy you've produced. You'll then take the opportunity to roll any energy dice you have. You'll get some little 
oil barrels, which you can use to temporarily gain some extra dice. So you'll either have oil barrel dice or you'll have permanent dice that you've gained to your board. You'll then roll all those dice. Now, these are all custom dice. They'll have on them one of the type of pollution icons, and then they'll have a number of energy symbols. You'll roll the dice and you'll figure out how much energy you have. However much energy you roll is how much energy you get to put on your board. And that energy can be used in various different ways. We already talked about you can use that energy to activate structures. If anyone is at a spot on the main board, you cannot go there unless you add one more energy than the previous person who was there. So if one person is there, you need to add one energy. If one person is there and he has already one energy on him, you need to give two energy when you go to that board. So energy is used to stack on workers to use spots that other people are already at. If you have a lot of energy, you'll be able to use more popular spaces, or you'll be able to use a lot of buildings with all the energy you have. So it's a good thing to be able to have that energy dice. And again, there are two ways of getting energy dice. There's a specific spot on the board where you can convert resources into permanent energy dice, or you can temporarily, or excuse me, you can convert petroleum into temporary brown dice. After you've rolled all your dice, some of the dice will have different types, or all the dice will have different types of pollution symbols on them. Whichever pollution symbol you rolled on your highest die, that you'll take one of those pollution symbols and put it onto your player board. So when you generate energy, it's going to be polluting the environment. It's up to you to clean that back up after you're done. That is a generate turn. So again, you on your turn, you have basically two options. You can either put out a worker and then activate any buildings of the same color, or you can pick up all your workers, generate to get more energy, and then end your and then pollute and end your turn there. I mentioned achievements. Achievements are one of the end game type of goals. You'll start the game actually being able to make a choice from one of two achievements, but achievements are these little tiles that come out that give you goals. For example, one achievement says gain one point for every worker you have, or gain one point for every plastic you have. So they're end-game goals, and by the end of the game, you can use them to get up to five points from each uh, achievement that you may have. And the way to get them, again, you start the game with one of them, but if you ever have two things unused when you're generating, so either two workers, two energy, or one worker and one energy, you can claim an achievement before you do the rest of a generate turn. It's important to try and weigh how to do that, especially in the solo game, because you'll want to be able to get those extra bonus points at the end of the game. So you want to think about which buildings you may not want to use in order to ensure that you have two things left over before you do your generate action. Last thing that I haven't mentioned yet is nation cards. We've talked about the different color buildings. That's There's red, green, and yellow or, excuse me, green, brown, and yellow cards. Every player has a special nation card, which acts just like a building, except it's like a a wild color. It can work on any color. So regardless of if you went to green, brown, or yellow, you can use your nation. And what your nation does is let you convert resources to going up on a UN track. 
The UN track is just endgame points. However far along in it is how many points you're going to get. And so, like, if you're all the way at the end, you get 17 points. Additionally, when you're playing multiplayer, whoever is farthest along on it gets three points. So you'll want to try and convert into that. And each nation requires different resources. So, for example, the United States requires one petroleum and two money. Usually those actually are tied into the other half of the nation cards because the nation cards are also used to determine what resources you have to start the game. So you'll have your choice at the beginning of the game from two nation cards and you'll be able to pick which two of the nation cards you have to start the game and that'll determine what your starting resources are because all the starting resources are printed on the nation cards. So Mm -hmm. there are stacks of pollution tokens and as you pollute due to um, rolling the dice or often when you buy a building it's also going to require you to pollute you'll take away one of the pollution tokens from the stack when one stack gets done a global impact card is going to come out these will usually have you score some points for one of the three type of environments so air forest or water and then it'll have some unique thing that'll apply either for then or until the next card is resolved once the six cards are all revealed. Everyone gets one last turn, and then you end the game. In multiplayer, whoever has the most points win. In solitaire mode, there's some extra special rules. You follow so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. No questions? Uh, no, I'm good, I think. Okay. In solitaire mode, it works almost exactly the same, except the number first difference is that the number of dice available for purchase gets reduced because normally it is component limited in dice. Uh, so they pull out some of those to, to sort of simulate other players have already bought those. Also, there's neutral workers that come out on a couple places on the board, especially the um, structure slots. So it's going to cost you some energy to go to any of those spots just straight off the bat. And every single time, usually when you're playing multiplayer, it's only for someone that has a lot of competition that's going to have that. And solitaire, five spaces essentially will always have an extra energy requirement to go there. Um, in order to win, you have to have three objectives. The first thing you have to do is you have to reach the last space of the UN track. If you haven't been spending enough resources throughout the course of the game in order to proceed on that track, you will not win. That's the rule. Additionally, you have to get 20 or more victory point from achievements. The max you can get from achievements is only 25. So you're going to need to make sure that you're getting a lot of achievements over the course of the game. And really, each of those achievements is something different. It could be that you were required to get plastic. It could be required to have a lot of nuclear radiation, etc. And so similar to how in the normal game, those will constantly get refreshed. When you're playing solitaire, every time you grab an achievement, you have three from the board and you discard the other two whenever you grab an achievement. So it's going to continually get refreshed. So you'll see some new ones. So you have to get a, a bunch of points from achievements. And then you also have to have 100 points or higher. According to the rules in the game, that's considered a win. And then you can get a better win by getting more points. Um, so far, I've gotten a relatively good win. My highest score so far is 121. It says that your highest that 
130 points or more is the highest rank you can get, a Nobel Prize winner. Um, so I think that was a pretty good score. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there's no way of increasing the difficulty other than just making it beat your own score. So that's for the solitaire play. Well, I think I've gone through all the rules, but I think I haven't really focused on my thoughts about a number of different aspects on the game other than just summarizing the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, have you had the opportunity to take a look at any of the art or any of the pictures for this? Just a little bit in BGG before we talked about it. Okay. I have to say, it the design on this is beautiful. It's really, really, really nice in terms of art, in terms of components. Everything looks really nice. I think that we were already talking about, um, you know, the, the different art on the different workers. They put together the board art to look like a person's desk with a couple folders open and there's a newspaper <laughs> laid out. Mm-hmm. And all the building art looks really nice. Each of the buildings has a small art picture of what that type of building is. All of the icons are really clear. I mean, it's it's not super complex interactions. It's usually something lines of trade this resource to this resource or gain this resource. Some of the more complicated interactions are written out in full text and don't use icons. But any of the icons are super simple, super easy to understand, really intuitive. Um, I'm a sucker for for. Uh, for custom dice and you've got plenty of custom <laughs> dice in here each side of the custom dice shows how many lightning bolts it has and i know that this was a kickstarter bonus this was a kickstarter game and i know one of the stretch goals was turning it into custom dice really nice with the custom dice because it makes it so easy to be able to see how many energy you roll and what pollution you have otherwise you have to consult back to the, the player board and do a lookup table really nice with the custom dice everything looks gorgeous but far and away are the tokens. Far and away are the tokens. For each of the resources, uh, you know, I, I used to think like the shape meeples are really nice. What they've done with this mm-hmm. is amazing. The, each of the different types of resources is quite different in how they did that. For money, they just used cardboard circles with money printed on it. For science, it's also cardboard circles and there's just like a, an atom symbol on it. I guess that's when it's hard. But for plastic, it's an actual plastic cube. For <laughs> steel, it's a shaped wood eye beam that's colored metal gray. For oil, it's a, um, I think it's a, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. It's like some pewter or some type of clay. It's a, it's a 3D oil drum. It's a round oil drum, which actually, if you Neat. look closely at it, it's got etching to show where the oil drum opens, the ring around the oil drum. It, it's it's modeled. <laughs> and these are for the resource tokens. Wow, it, okay. The, you open it up and you just look at the, the resource tokens and you just think, wow, they really like put everything into making the game look really, really nice. It looks really, really nice. <laughs> looks really and so, nice. Does everybody get all these upgrades, the dice and the tokens, or is that just Kickstarter? No, everybody does. That is nice. retail. Okay. The only difference between the Kickstarter version and the other version is one single card, which is available on BGG for $4 without shipping. Mm-hmm. That's it. I love that they did that. Yeah, That's, that I is agree. the best way to run a Kickstarter, is everyone gets the bonus, 
and Kickstarter's guys get one, you know, one small bonus and, you know, they get a really cool game and everyone gets a really cool game because I, I would not have picked this up if, if all of these bonuses did not go to everyone because they are amazing. They are incredible. They look so nice. I mean, I, I'm sorry for continuing on on it, but it's striking. It's really striking how nice it is. I don't do this for me. I've talked before about minis. Minis don't do it for me, but the extra effort they went in, that the resources are each unique and stylized, it feels like if you've ever grabbed one of the token boxes from Stonemeyer Games, which has all different types of token boxes, like the 3D Woods and things like that, mm-hmm. it feels like they went and tried to do that for this. And they really, I mean, they did a really good job of it. You know, the biggest, the biggest maybe complaint is that the steel is still wood instead of being steel, but it's, it's wood. It's it'd still be super heavy. <laughs> you know, it looks really amazing. And the worker tokens, um, they are thick. They're probably twice or three times the thickness of what you would normally think of as a chipboard piece. They're very thick. And I played some other games where you have stacks of worker tokens. Like I'm, I'm thinking right now of Vast, where when you're playing goblins, a stack of worker tokens is extremely important for figuring out how big that stack is. This game also, it's extremely important to know how big that stack is. And it's really easy because all the tokens are really thick. The tokens for the workers and for the energy are really thick. They're not very big. They're only about maybe an inch by a quarter inch or so. So they're not very Uh big. They're the perfect size in terms of how large they are, but they're really thick, which makes them really nice to hold and really nice to be able to see how large a stack is on the table. They blew me away with the components in this game. That's nice. That's always really satisfying when when the game just feels good to hold. Really good. Really good. Um, let's talk a bit about some of the rules aspects about how the game plays. When I first was reading about the game, before I started playing the solo mode, I was thinking, you know, I, I, I was feeling maybe a bit concerned that it would be stale, the solo mode, because it's the exact same objective every time. I was thinking, like, this would be a game that might help from having the challenges on the guild. Uh, where people post up like, do this challenge, like we've seen this for Feast of Odin, that we have fixed start challenge, excuse me, fixed start challenges and things of that nature to bring a bit of variability or a bit of more replayability to the game. And I was originally thinking that this would be required for that also. But I, I mentioned before about how you have to have 20 or more victory points from achievements. That really becomes the sort of variety and scenario light type change you have to the game each time. And I think even according to the rules, you get your choice between one of three. I think the game is potentially better if it's a choice of one of two in solo every time, because those to me, it feels like you have to be working to get those achievements. And if it's one of three, you'll be able to find one that already sort of works for you. It's not really Uh, like a detriment it's not a difficulty it's just sort of a slight detour when it's one of two i felt like it's hard to do 
and it really requires you to rethink how you're going to do it and, and make sure that you can get those. So having those be achievements that you have to get at least 20 points of achievements when the max you could possibly get from achievements is only 25 creates a set of variability to each game that is almost like a mini set of scenarios that make each game even when you're playing solo very well make each game different i'm not gonna say very different because i still think like some scenario play could make it different, but it keeps it different. It keeps it unique each time because you're going to have those different set of goals by whatever achievements come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see it would make a big difference because you got to play to the points that are available. You have to because because it becomes one of the objectives that you have to get those achievements. It really means that that scenario, it becomes a scenario light is really what it does. Mm-hmm. With just based on what's in it. Um, similarly, the fact, fact that there's different nations, and I'm, this is true for both multiplayer and not multiplayer, the different nations allow all the different types of starting players to have different diversifications. So like, for example, the green buildings commonly want science. You need science to buy them. They often give you science or want science to interact. So they're very much playing around with the science resource. So if you have a nation that gives you a bunch of science, it sort of helps jumpstart your engine towards the green track. So that means that the different players, even though on the face of it would be all identical, the different nations help really start to diversify players to give you a way that you can go in. But the game is still very flexible in switching between the different types. There's a spot on the board where you can trade an unlimited number of tokens and things back and forth. So it's very easy to jump between one to the other and move over to another one uh, because of that flexibility. So having that different nations give a different start is a good balance between different starting powers or different starting setups without Mm -hmm. really forcing you into a fixed path. Okay. Um, another interesting thing about the end of the game is the game starts to feel different at one point in time. During early game, what you're often doing is you're going and you're putting out resource, you're putting out a bunch of workers. So you may take four or five different spots on the board until you have to do a generate and bring it all back. But late game, you'll just be going to one spot on the board, and then you'll activate all your buildings, spend all of your workers and all your energy, and you will, at the very least, this is how I've been playing most of my games. At the end of the game, you'll only be alternating between work, generate, work, generate, work, generate, and you'll spend everything on one turn. And so very much you start to build up an engine when you do that. You're starting to get buildings so that you can build up an engine so that you can run all of your buildings and do one thing with all of them and make the most out of those turns and do that quickly and continue to do that and get points or get resources or keep building up the something or keep building up to buildings, which whichever way it is that you have. But you start rushing towards the end game. So it means that there's a very different feel between how you're playing at the beginning and how you're playing at the end. And I'm not, okay. sure, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, I could, I could see what you mean. It, it's, sometimes it's weird when the game changes. 
I mean, I think it, it, it just feels, I don't know. I'm not quite sure what, I'm not quite sure what it is to explain the feeling of it. It just does. It just does change, you know? I think that's just a matter that you build up your engine and then all of one point in time, you have an engine and you can run it and you just do it. Do it over and over again. And that means that the end game can really rush up at you because by that point in time, you're generating much more frequently. So that means that you're polluting more frequently. You may be also cleaning up more frequently, but you're going to be polluting more frequently. And the pollution Mm -hmm. stacks go really vast. And so the end game can really sneak up on you, especially in multiplayer. Mm-hmm. The, the, I like that that pollution is a, is a mechanism to sort of control a runaway engine. How do you think like, so? Well, I mean, if if you're producing more, you're going to create more pollution, and that's going to bring the end game faster. Yeah, there are sort of two tracks you can be doing about that. There are ways of playing which can be pollution light, and there are ways of playing that can be pollution heavy. So, like, some ones are going to give you nuclear pollution as opposed to just standard pollution, and those ones are often higher point value, but then you have nuclear pollution on your board, and that's hard to clean up. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they definitely definitely do. I, I really like the theme of it, though, with the pollution tying into everything. Yeah, that that's cool. How uh, there's a there's a cost to everything you do, mm-hmm. which is not a lot of games never have a cost in there. You just go do whatever you can get away with, other than the resources. Yeah, the and the limited time. Yeah, I mean it's an excellent thing having a tie into pollution like that. It's nice. Mm-hmm. I don't know that unless you really feel it, like you know. I don't think you're going to be convincing anyone who's anti-industry one way or the other based on this. Oh. <laughs> but it's a nice it's a nice way of making pollution into a new resource that you have to manage. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, because most games don't do something like that. That's just a nice twist. One thing and, that's uh, very different between this and the past uh, Manhattan Project, though, is there's not a lot of interaction in this game. In the original Manhattan Project, you could really have a lot of interaction because there was a lot of mess with the other player spots on the board. There are spots you can go bomb them, you can go do espionage or sabotage. Mm -hmm. None of that is here. You can maybe put like extra energy tokens out on a spot if you want to try and block off players from doing it. In general, you're doing nothing but hurting yourself doing that because you're making it harder for yourself to get extra points from achievements. If you've already got your max achievements, so fine, maybe it's worth it. But in general... There's not a lot of player interaction. The biggest form of player interaction is some of the uh, global impact cards that lets you try and block off other players with unique things, like putting up pollution tokens. Um, so those, those are the most type of player interactions are those things. But there's not really a lot. It's not like I can look at your player board and mess with you. Um, it really reminds me almost of Feast for Odin, or a feast of Odin, whichever it is, um, where you have a lot of options, a lot of things you can be doing. And there's not a lot of fighting between the players for spots. You just sort of have to work around players a bit. And I'm not going to really be fighting with that other person. I'm not going to be attacking that other person. I'm not going to be trying to deny them spots. I may end up by chance denying them spots, but typically I'm not really denying them spots, just deny them. It may be that they want, like, power dice are very powerful. They give you bonus points. They're worth 
energy over time. And so that's a popular spot to get in. So another person might get it because it's a popular spot. So you may want to be thinking about that. But -hmm. there's not a lot of player interaction because of that. Okay. How how long does the game last? Um, A solitaire play? In solitaire play? About a Mm -hmm. half hour. Okay. That's not bad. That's pretty quick. And setup is pretty fast? Uh, I'm trying to think if it actually is. Maybe it's like 45 minutes. It's rated 1 to 2 hours for 1 to 5 players. For multiplayers, I think I'm finding that. Playing solitaire, I mean, this one time I now played a bunch of games, so I think I'm saying a half hour after having, after now being quite familiar with the game. Um, what was your question? Um, how long is it going to last solo? Is End the setup. Oh, how long does it take to set up? Not very yeah. long at all. I got a Plano box to hold all the resources, so I shuffle up the building cards, so that's three shuffles. I shuffle up and pick a nation card, and I dump out all of the achievements on, in a pile and spread those around. So not very long at all. Okay. Oh, and I have to make stacks of pollution tokens. But in solo, it's only two pollution tokens per, so not very long at all. Okay, cool. Really fast like to get the table. And how much does the game cost retail? No idea. No idea. Okay. Guess. You know, ballpark. Is it a $20 game, you think? I think it's like a $40 game? game. I mean, speaking of that planned reaction, I really sometimes wish that the there's it's static where the ghost players, when you're playing solitaire, solitaire a couple spots have ghost players on there to make a couple spots more valuable, but those don't move around at all like they would in a regular game. I almost wish there was a mini deck in addition to the global impact. Like whenever global impact cards comes out, a couple new ghost players will start moving around or ghost players move to slide the predictable thing. It's probably not worth it. And I can imagine why they didn't do it, but I every once in a while I feel like I wish there was that much more, but I'm sure it was probably more complicated than it was really worth dealing with. Okay. Now you said this was a Kickstarted. It was originally Kickstarted. Okay. And Do you know if there's searching. any expansions in it? With it, there, the Kickstarter? there are none. Um, there's no expansions. There's no content that's out in Kicks. There's no content that is not available at retail or on the BGG store. I know that there have been a couple threads about ideas he's having for expansions. Um. I would probably look heavily into those expansions when they come out because the game is really, really fun. Hmm, okay. And you know how many expansions I got. I think we discussed yeah. that recently. <laughs> the game is a lot of so fun. So far, three. <laughs> Something like that. So yeah, 40, uh, 42 bucks on uh, Miniature Market. I actually was pretty close. I said 40. Oh, yeah, okay. So 42 bucks. Cool, okay, not bad. As nice as the components are, I think it's probably worth that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds like it. The components are really, really nice. Really nice. Doesn't quite fit in the box so well once I have my Plano in there, but it's okay. Not that big. <laughs> I certainly would say- if I sleeved the cards, I wouldn't be able to fit the cards in because the cards are standing upright. Did you say you keep Plano in your box? Plano, a Plano box, a plastic storage ah. solution. Ah, uh, okay. See, it's a weird place to store your Plano, but okay. My kids eat their Play-Doh wherever they want. <laughs> I, I wish I could yeah. get my kids to keep their Play-Doh in a regular fixed spot. Yeah. You know what you do is you get a dog, they'll take care of it. A dog. You'll never see Play-Doh lying around again. Dogs just eat it. 
So you gonna go pick up a copy? I don't know. Maybe. Not yet. I've got too many unplayed games right now. It really is my biggest issue. I'm working through that list. And it just added Arkham Horror to that list. Well, I'm going to be adding expansions to that list. That is no excuse. (laughs) That is no excuse, sir. So, but the real question, the real Mm -hmm. question is... I know we've talked that I've tried to convince you to get it. I've tried to convince you to love the game. But the real question is, what is the game missing? Ah, yes. If it had one more thing, I might get it. (laughs) And what should that thing be? What should that thing be? You you tell me. Well, as with every week, Lint. as with every week after we review a game, Albert and I are going to select from a list of words submitted by our wonderful listeners. So many words to pick from. And he and I are going to argue about which one of them is more fit and suit to be put into this game. And the random word generation actually picked some older submissions coming up this time from back in early early when we started this uh first submission albert is some jason clark for you your word is crisco this game needs more crisco and my word is going to be about jellyfish coming in from mo Mm, i'm sure you remember the last time mo gave me a word (laughs) that always works so well yeah so i'm gonna have to do jellyfish and you get to do crisco all right, and let's see who gets to go first. Let's look at the uh, the last entry. We always have the listeners vote. Mm-hmm. And we post a thread on the One Player Guild. And for episode 118, we had we argued for um, the game, the Bloody Inn either needed cleaning or animated tokens. And we had, the winner was cleaning no shock. 18 votes to 8. Yes. You d- you did a good job arguing for it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was arguing for your side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Not not a shock there. So sorry. Yep. So I guess Crisco gets to go first today. All right. Well, whenever you're ready. Um, all right. Here I go. So so this game needs Crisco. Everybody knows the old slogan. If you're old like me, uh, now I'm cooking with Crisco, right? And you need energy to cook, and this game is an energy empire game, so what you need is Crisco, a source of energy, a virtually unending source of energy, as well, a type of pollution. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Okay. I'm, I'm resting on my laurels. Well, I guess I get to make a response to that. Sure. All right, ready? Here I go. So essentially, you just told us that Crisco is A, energy, and B, pollution. You couldn't have been more vague. With jellyfish, you have a bright new building possibility for an aquarium full of lovely jellyfish that you can imagine people coming from all around and integrating into your beautiful machine and letting you translate science into resources and all sorts of things. Stop. Hmm... Yeah, I get my five-second rebuttal. Ready, set, go. Yeah. 
Jellyfish are dangerous. They sting. Do you only put jellyfish in a box and hurt the consumers? No. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Duh. I hope I don't want to put jellyfish in the box. <laughs> Just little pictures. Just little, <laughs> Just little cardboard jellyfish. Little jelly token jellyfish. Yeah, I saw someone who had Squishy some tokens. really strange Arkham type tentacle type stuff that they're putting in their box. I'm like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> Have you ever jellyfish. played um what is that game? Um If If Fishes Were Wishes? No. It brings worms in the game, rubber worms. Sort of like fishing lore type worms. <laughs> it's great. And they're they're a resource in the token. A currency basically. <laughs> and it is the best because it's fun to play the game and line up your worms and you know wiggle the worms around. It's it's just fun. So now if you're arguing for worms, I'd buy into it, but uh, I don't know. Jellyfish? I don't know. <laughs> All right, so I think we have an episode. That's a wrap. Let's go build our empire. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We love feedback, so we love hearing from you. You can reach me at Julius at OnePlayerPodcast.com or JLBird on BGG. And Albert can be reached at Albert at OnePlayerPodcast.com or Fractaloon on BGG. Our website is OnePlayerPodcast.com with the number one, and we're also on Twitter at OnePlayerPodcast. The intro music is copyright Angus, can be found at Gemendo.com. The transition music is copyright by Dan Elduce Pancaldi, whose page is at DanPancaldi.com. The One Player Podcast is protected under a Creative Commons share-alike license. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board games. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 119. Oh, I forgot what it was, but I had a very funny intro. Dude, what was <laughs> I had something, darn. <laughs> that is going in the outtakes. Power to the people. There we go. <laughs> uh, actually, I was wrong. It wasn't that funny. <laughs> <sighs>